0: Welcome to the Digital Growth Hacking Podcast at New Republic. I'm your host, Nemi Sini. And like always, we've trawled the internet to find the best uh, people to talk to about anything to do with experimentation, personalization, and that little ugly word, CRO. Today... I am joined by the OG, the original father of experimentation. (laughs) You can hear him laughing in the back. His name's Tim Ash. If you don't know this man, he started experimentation before there was experimentation. He's also the author of a wonderful new book that he's put out. if, uh, if If you're on Amazon, check it out. It's called Unleash Your Primal Brain by Tim Ash. And with, with that, let me introduce Tim. Tim, you want to say hi to everybody?
1: Absolutely, Nemo. Very happy to be with you. OG, I like that. That just means old guy, doesn't it?
0: I, I didn't want to say, like, you know, maybe gangster, maybe not. But I don't know. It's, it sounds cool, man. Like, it sets premise of where we're going to go through in this discussion, right? Do you, do you mind yeah. the word
1: OG? Or is no, that- not at all. I mean, I got started in 1995, shortly after Al Gore invented the interwebs. There you and, go. Uh, as, you, as you mentioned, written a couple of uh, best-selling books on landing page optimization. A few people have actually blamed me for their misguided career choices and going into CRO as a result. But I said, hey, you know, it's your responsibility. All I did was write the books. There you go.
0: So, so Tim, maybe, you know, for Australia a very far away place and the internet takes a long time to load here. Uh, Maybe for all of us uh, Luddites, (laughs) you might want to kind of give us a bit of a history into the OG
1: Team Ash. Absolutely. Well, as I mentioned, I started back in 1995 and um, had an incubator which helped launch new startups. So we'd help them raise their first round of financing, be acting CTO, usually on the management team and guide them. And eventually that morphed into essentially doing pay-per-click marketing. And we did that really well. And then from there, we opened up a division that did affiliate marketing, essentially driving pay-per-click traffic and then making money off the spread. And what we quickly realized is that our ability to make money was limited by the crappy landing pages we were landing it on. And that was my foray around 2000 into conversion rate optimization. And we said, hey, let us fix your landing pages and we'll all make a lot more money. Turned into a situation of the tail wagging the dog and we jettisoned our pay-per-click management and the affiliate stuff and became a pure CRO agency called SiteTuners. Yeah, right. And uh, $1.2 billion in proven value for clients later. Facebook, Nestle, Expedia's of the world. Yeah, I think we had a pretty solid reputation. That's amazing, man. Along the way, I also started Conversion Conference, which is an international, the first non-vendor uh, tied conference on conversion rate optimization and except for covid years we still run it in the US, Germany and the UK every year as well. Yeah, right. But a couple of years ago I stepped out so I'm not actively involved in site tuners anymore. I sold it to my business partners and, or in running the conference.
0: Right. And so what what does Tim Ash do today besides writing best-selling books on behavioral science and experimentation?
1: Well, I took a hard look. I guess you could say I'm in my midlife, as you say, in Uh, the OG. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It feels more like three quarters or four fifths, (laughs) actually. But I said, you know, what do I want to be when I grow up? And running a professional services firm wasn't really lighting my fire. It's uh, As you know, it's a complicated business model. And I just wanted to focus on what gave me passion. And that's always been the evangelism, the education, I keynote spoken at a couple of hundred events around the world. And so I'm focusing on the book, my new LinkedIn learning class on neuromarketing, which is just about the drop, as well as uh, just uh, breaking away from CRO, actually. So I don't want to be just defined by that. And the evolutionary psychology in my latest book, Unleash Your Primal Brain, gives me entree into all kinds of other topics that I want to talk about
0: interesting well hopefully we can get you to talk about it today so um, look you said 1995 we've we've been throwing around the word OG you know I'm really keen like you've watched this this space evolve and you've been one of the founding fathers of this space what, what is if you can like, if we could do like a Delorean time lapse right and get into mm. Delorean and go back what's the evolution look like how much has it evolved from the days when you started to to today you know and a lot of people don't like the word who are in the practice we don't like saying cro you know i use the word experimentation i remember you saying you used another word i'd love to know what the the journey is look like what's the evolution look like and then if you could kind of time lapse into the future what does the future look like
1: yeah well i think the fundamental issue that we faced hasn't changed which is that uh most web experiences are still designed with what i call the megaphone it's the company broadcasting to the world about how great they are and the notion of user-centered design is just now beginning to ingrain itself in some people's heads and i I worked with don norman back in the day he was the guy literally wrote the original book on user-centered design and that was my textbook at uc san diego Um, so for me this is what i live and breathe and i think even people in CRO, the focus is still too much on the company and not enough on the needs of the visitors. And I just feel like Don Quixote sometimes tilting at windmills trying to change that. I mean, certainly the technology has changed. Um, there was a time where for focus reasons, we didn't want to do mobile websites or apps or things like that. And people aren't always going to be landing on a web page. Uh, there's voice response stuff now. So In a way, there is no landing page in many cases. The direct response mechanisms are changing. But the notion of understanding your visitors and persuading them, uh, that's the part where I kind of wanted to shift the conversation. Instead of all the tactics and tools, all the testing tool vendors are telling you, it's all about testing velocity, and it's not. Doing bad ideas faster and doing tactical testing instead of important, impactful stuff, uh, that's not the answer.
0: Yeah, it's true. And I, I, um, I have these conversations all day, every day. There's actually a, a brand that we talked to just recently and we were talking about velocity versus quality. And <laughs> you know, they're all like, oh, velocity, we're trying to drive our velocity. And I'm like, why? Uh, there's a big software company in Australia who was, same conversation. Were, the executives were demanding velocity because they read an article from eBay, which said, if we just get more tests in, then it doesn't matter if the tests are rubbish Because inside that, we'll find some tests that are good and they'll cover up the rubbish tests. They never talked about the cost of of doing that, but they were just so focused on increase your velocity and you'll be awesome.
1: Yeah, well, there's actually, uh, I think of it as three tracks. There's the just do it stuff, which isn't Mm. even worth testing. Then there's the tactical testing, and you should have a prioritization and as well as a threshold, because like you say, there's an opportunity cost to doing a test. There's a real cost, tangible cost of doing the test. And if you assume that most of them are gonna fail, which I don't know about your experience, but that's been mine Mm. Uh, talking about learnings doesn't help either. It's not money on the bottom line. So if you factor all that into account, there should be a threshold that you have to exceed in order to even consider doing a test. And most companies aren't that rigorous, but here's the dirty little secret
0: unless
1: you have the mother of all data rates, like you can't do only testing because if you test your high volume pages they get better and your ideas get worse because you use them all up. So if all you're doing is tactical testing, you're quickly going to hit plateaus.
0: So, so let's, let's, I want to, I want to dig into that statement in a sec, but I I just want to go back a little bit. I remember uh, back in the day when it was eBay who said, we're going to pay a dollar per click. And they forced everyone into a cost per click conversation. And they set this rate of a dollar. Where did in CRO, where did this conversation around velocity come from? Was it the tool vendors as a way of driving usage of their tool? Or was it truly the Ebays of the world saying there's real value in velocity? So where did this thing begin?
1: Well, again, you're talking about giant companies. If you're eBay or Google, mm. they, I believe, famously had a creative director quit because they were testing the RGB of the blue on the button. And you know why they're doing that? Because they freaking could because they had that mother of all data rates. Most companies don't have that luxury. So maybe this the exception of this is for enterprise clients and we worked with some of them including actually Google and their AdWords sign up page, but in most cases You can't do that. And this this definitely came from the tool vendors because they see it as an objective metric for justifying the bloated cost of their software.
0: Australia is really interesting because, you know, you have your Ebays and your Googles and your Facebooks over there. Australia's population is very like the website with the biggest amount of traffic is about 25 million. It's about the size of California. <laughs> That's our biggest. Website. Oh, you're
1: smaller. We have about 40 million. No, you're right. You have about a 10th of the 100%. population of the US, under a 10th. And so when you think about that, that means objective quantifiable testing is very limited. And, and to me, I've heard people say, well, you should test everything. To me, it's a crutch. It's for settling bar bets. It's to make sure that you don't get punished for doing the wrong thing but the impactful stuff i've always thought when i used to run site tuners of it is more of a digital mckinsey we were very strategic we would change the business model we would go in and look at their email sequences and see how they're communicating with people we'd look at their onboarding uh, process and we'd look at the cancellation process once we had a an e-commerce site that sold really expensive high-end stuff and we went in and trained their telesales people about 60 people did a 1 week sales training for their telesales people. The website didn't change at all, no improvement, but their telephone sales went up 15%. That was multi-million dollars on their bottom line with a one-week training of their telesales. So we are looking to unlock value in the business. And so I think that the notion that CRO is just testing is really reductive and tactical, and it's not going to get you a seat at the grown up table.
0: I want to build on something you said there is, One of the common things in Australia, because, you know, I've I've never said Australia truly invents anything, but we definitely perfect it. Like if the US invents and the UK then kind of expands or the the Europe expands, Australia perfects. And and we've got one of the fastest adoptions of technology and we're one of the fastest growers when it comes to adoption of of new techniques. But the one thing I commonly find is that a lot of the methodologies that are used in the US don't work here. Like, for example, drive velocity. They don't work here because we don't have the traffic to drive mm-hmm. the kind of statistical outcomes that we're looking for. Therefore, testing everything is sometimes a foolhardy exercise other than what you said about design, satisfying the CEO's need to see that the, you know, the image has changed to an Australia background because that's what the CEO
1: wants. <laughs> right. And uh, <laughs> of course, we call that the hippo, highest paid person's Correct. opinion, right. right? the hippo. Yeah, love just- the hippo. Yeah. Well, and so I think there's really, there's the tactical stuff or rather the just do it stuff. There's the tactical testing, which needs a financial threshold. And then there's strategic things. Redesign your website to be user-centered. Mm. fix your content marketing to support every stage of the customer journey. So that's the
0: stuff you're saying you should test, right? Is that bigger, high value stuff? Is that right? Well,
1: it's not that you can even test it unless you can flip a switch and say old site, new site. You have to, you just have to do certain things. That's what I'm saying when testing becomes a crutch. If you have to validate everything and be able to back it up, out rather, you can't do that. Uh, Sometimes it requires a leap of faith and a significant investment and you're not going to get high value for low input and low cost that's just unlikely to be a something that lasts so you you talk about a threshold walk me through
0: like what are your rules of thumb that if you know the listeners here today are like hey i, I, I like the way this guy tim ash thinks and by the way you can buy his book unleashed your primal brain uh on this-
1: booktopia the booktopia that's yeah. in
0: september that's right and thank you for my copy it's wonderful it's a really good read by the way um so Walk us through in your mind. You know, you talk about the the threshold in which you go to testing. If for the listeners here, now we're in Australia, we've got smaller volumes of traffic. Definitely, uh, very smart when it comes to to digital. What would be some of your advice around thresholds for? Well, well, it's
1: simple. It's, it's math and economics. So let me just walk you through a hypothetical example. When you actually take all of the steps required to run a test to completion, it's uh, ideation and brainstorming involving multiple people, designing the test plan itself, building out those new versions, doing QA on them, testing them against traffic to make sure it's flowing and recording conversions, running it for a while and collecting the data and then analyzing the results, right? Now, let's say all of that staff time plus software costs is, let's just say $10,000. It may very well be or a lot higher. That's
0: that's USDs, everybody. It's a lot more expensive here.
1: <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. I, I,
0: I don't yeah. need anyone calling me going, that, hey, we, we won't pay that much money. That's good. That's good value.
1: <laughs> well, I'm, I'm just using, again, a hypothetical number. Sure. And then on the back end of it, let's say you have a 20% success rate of your tests. Well, what does that tell you? That you should be at least shooting for a $50,000 improvement on every test you do because four fifths of them are going to fail and they're each costing you $10,000. So that's just basic math. And so if someone brings me a test idea, I have to, how painful is the problem you're trying to fix? Is it worth doing this? Give me the numbers. Okay. If this is going to be a low yield test, maybe we get a five to 10% improvement okay, is that going to justify that 50000 that I'm about to spend? That's the true cost of this, of testing it.
0: Yeah, that's really good value, really good um, insight. Quick one, something I've, I've actually wanted to ask you for a while, I haven't written down the question guide, but um, I, I've had this, this discussion with a few clients around, you know, you do an experiment, it validates, you implement that. Then you do another experiment, it validates, you implement that, then you do it. And I, I give you an example is up So I was talking to me about, um, you know, they've done these pop-up tests and they're great. It's now that they've implemented everything, every single page is serving pop-up. So I'm like, what's that? <laughs> what's that like? It's like, man, when we did it, it was like brilliant because we got like revenue uplifts. It was great. But now when I'm going through it, it's really bad. And it's like the worst experience ever. And he's like, what? how do you know what to do and what not to do? Like, what's the right Way going back because in isolation, the experiment was amazing. But when you put it in combination in, in a real life scenario, it's really shocking.
1: So, I mean, yeah, I, I liken this to barnacles building up on the hull of a ship. At, yeah. at first, they won't slow you down too much, but you get enough of them and you're going to slow to a crawl. Yeah, 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 so exactly. One of the things that we should be testing is removing things. That's a routine part of our strategy. What can we get rid of on this page and lighten the load, scrape off some of the barnacles? So, you shouldn't always be thinking about adding things. Often it's about simplifying the experience. But even the stuff you've
0: validated and you've implemented, Tim, you think you should be removing those as well? Well,
1: the the thing that we did for important tests is we kept the back test running. So 5% of the traffic, sometimes 10%, you keep the original version in the mix as things go forward. You might find out it only works for a short amount of time and then the advantage goes away or it only works in seasonal situations. And the rest of the year, it's actually counterproductive. The only way to know that is to continue to invest some traffic in the original or preceding version.
0: Yeah, that makes complete sense.
1: So listen,
0: I know um, we had a discussion about, you know, you, and what you said is like, it's not just about testing, it's wider than that. And and now you're kind of lifting that veil and saying, I want to talk about something broader. I'd, I'd love to kind of dive into that a bit more is like. As the OG who is the founding father, you're walking away from your love child. Where are you going? Where's this world that you're going into and should we be following you like Moses into the desert?
1: Oh, well, remember, um, Moses wandered in the desert for 40 years and he never actually got to see the promised land. So That's I don't why we're asking the question.
0: This. this is why we're asking the question before <laughs> we start the journey.
1: Well, you can't follow me. I'm lost. First of all, let's start there. No, I, I, For me, this is a reset for midlife, and um, uh, it has to do more with my self-knowledge. Uh, what am I good at? I suspect that you've probably taken personality tests like Myers-Briggs or DISC or Enneagram. Well, for me, they all say kind of the same thing. Uh, they say that I'm an enthusiast, an evangelist, an idea guy. I'm not the follow-through guy. I'll give mm. you some idea. I would rather get my teeth cleaned three times a year instead of twice so I don't have to floss. I'm that guy. I'm not good at maintenance stuff. So I realized that what lights my fire is doing more of that, being of service to people, um, educating and so on. And I just restructured things so I wouldn't have to run a professional services firm. So I'm focusing on the keynote speaking, LinkedIn learning courses, uh, my new mastermind group that I'm gonna have, uh, it's called Primal Brain Marketing as well as uh, the new book. And that's really going back to my first love, which is persuasion, psychology, how the brain works, cognition. That's what I studied at uh, University of California, San Diego. Uh, Almost got my PhD in uh, machine learning and neural networks, in fact. So I applied it to marketing. I made our clients a bunch of money. Now I want to be the guy that explains how the brain really works to, to the world from an evolutionary perspective.
0: Interesting. And so I know, I know, um, you know, we, we've been, uh, I know at New Republic, we always talk about how behavioral sciences and experimentation are, are hand in glove and they should work together. I mean, give us a bit of an insight around how, you know, you said you've used this inside marketing. Mean, give us a bit of an insight around how you implemented in your business and how you brought that into the market over there.
1: Well, I would conservatively say that out of the 1.2 billion in documented values that site tuners created for clients while i ran it probably three quarters was due to durable neuromarketing principles in other words i think there's a mistake Uh, oh, uh, it's Clubhouse this week and uh, VR next week and hologram suppositories the following week. I don't know what the new technology is going to be. Hologram suppositories. But I can tell you that the thing you're trying to persuade hasn't changed. That's the human brain. So if you want a durable career in marketing, stop talking about the technology and start learning about evolutionary psychology. That's the root. That's the foundational stuff. You want to understand what makes us tick, how we act, the quote-unquote irrational biases we all have, start studying psychology and, and how we got here. And we picked up things along the way from the earliest forms of life that's still inside of us. And then there's some distinctly bizarre recent things that make us human, for sure. But you need to retrace that whole evolutionary arc to understand what motivates people and how they really make decisions.
0: So that's interesting. Let's, let's look at, you know, you talk about evolutionary and, and you know, we've, I, I personally think that recently the whole world has gone through an evolutionary change in with COVID, you know, the, the belief that you know, I, I remember, you go back to my childhood, the concept of a pandemic was foreign. I mean, I, I was still grappling with a tsunami when it hit Thailand. I was like, mm. there is such a thing as a tsunami. What is that? And so, <laughs> because it became the realm of possibility in the destruction that it, it, it delivered that it was a realm of possibility. And now tsunamis are in all our vocabulary and you know pandemics uh, were never a part of my vocabulary but they are today and i know a lot of people and it and it is an an evolutionary event maybe not like the cataclysmic one that the dinosaurs faced, but it is an evolutionary event how do you think an event like that is going to change the way people behave and work and think and how does that relate back to some of us in experimentation how do you think we should be utilizing that in the work that we're doing
1: well, I would say I'm not a futurist. I'm a pastist. <laughs> I'm looking at the past. So what I mean by evolution is the literally billions of years of life on this planet, hundreds of millions of years of brains evolving and our, like I said, relatively recent additions to that to be distinctly human. From that perspective, nothing changes. We're fly frozen in amber. So, so the durable stuff is right there in front of you. Uh, and I'm not talking about Uh, whether you're an introvert or an extrovert or whether you're conservative or liberal, any of those cultural distinctions, that's all an overlay. But to understand that we evolved to spread culture and group into tribes and how all of those mechanics work, that to me is the foundational layer. It's the fundamental stuff. It's what all 8 billion of us on the planet share. So I'd rather put my uh, study into durable things like that, that I know are going to work in a variety of settings, than to try to parse whether Gen Z kids really like TikTok or not.
0: They do. They truly do. So <laughs> give me okay, so give me some examples. Crystallize this for me. When when you're talking about those, I mean tribes, of course. But give me some example, other examples around some of these behavioral factors that you think are so critical in the way people make decisions and live their lives. Uh, um,
1: well, one is real obvious loss aversion. We were once working with Dropbox on their paid version of their file sharing software. And, and the page was basically like, oh, Dropbox is wonderful. And you'll be more productive and happy and have whiter teeth and be better looking and all of that stuff. And we said, no, no, you don't sell the happy stuff. People are afraid of loss and losing resources. So we had them paint a high contrast picture of this is life without Dropbox. This is life with Dropbox. And the contrast was so black and white that paying $9.95 a month for it was obviously a great deal. So I think a lot of marketers say, well, that's off brand. We don't say mean things and we don't say negative stuff. And well, okay, you don't have to badmouth your competitors, but can you talk about the implications of staying on the current path if they do nothing? Can you rub some salt into the wound? So to me, a lot of these brand guardians are really making a big mistake by trying to be a nice brand. They should really poke some sticks into the fire. So the problem with marketing is brand. No, I, yeah, I hear well, where you come from. That there's a loss aversion is twice as powerful as upside, 100%. and we're not taking advantage of loss aversion as marketers very often.
0: Right. So I mean, that's a good example of what uh, Burger King in the U.S. did with taking away the Whopper, right? And taping people's reactions off the back of that, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. And and there have been the studies, you know. There's a famous study about uh, pizza. So imagine a ten dollar fully loaded pizza with five toppings. Now you can sell it two ways. You can have the plain cheese pizza and add five toppings for a dollar or start with the fully loaded one and take away toppings for a dollar that you didn't want. And it turns out the higher ticket by far ends up being starting with the fully loaded version because that loss of version kicks in and you go, well, I really like pepperoni. I don't want to lose it. And the psychology of that's very different than saying I want to add pepperoni, but is it worth a buck? Got it.
0: That makes sense. That makes complete sense. I mean, Loss aversion is a very common trend that's used. I mean, uh, booking.com is very famous for it. There's X many rooms left. There's so many people looking at the room. Tell me something, when you're you're looking at these kind of new biases, do you believe that they work better in combination or independently on their own? So like loss aversion is a, a bias on its own, but do you think a bias like that is more powerful when you couple it with another bias like a bandwagon effect?
1: Yeah, well, we combine them routinely at site yeah. tuners and got fantastic results. So absolutely, they can be grouped, but only when they make sense. For example, I can anchor on a really expensive thing first. Then I can tell you we're running out of those things, and have you buy the cheaper one as a substitute. So then we're we're doing two things: we're anchoring and we're introducing scarcity. So all the time, all day long, that makes money.
0: And, and do you find do you find that the human brain works better when you when you have two biases working uh, against each other? Or do you find that if you focus on one thing, because, you know, as human beings, we are quite niche in the way we kind of focus on one thing and hold on to it. Do you you think that uh, a coupling is a better exercise than doing it independently?
1: It really depends on the context. So I can't say that as a blanket statement. Uh, One thing I can tell you is what you want to do is you want to create some kind of emotion in me. So uh, one of the other mistakes that I see people doing is they're catering to the quote unquote rational brain. And that's not the one that decides. We literally can't make a decision without emotion. All the logical mind does is present us with options. The decision happens, the narrowing of the choice based on how strong our emotional reaction is. So uh, you have to, again, stir the pot and create emotions. That's the job of a marketer. I recently took a public speaking course and now I'm redoing one of my keynotes because they said I need to add a notation to it. What emotion do you want to evoke in this part of the speech? So it's almost like a musical score. I'm thinking about playing on people's emotions very consciously. I think marketers need to do that. And if they're trying to use cold logic, $10 a month, but it's only 100 if you prepay for the year. I mean, that kind of bullshit and math belongs nowhere in marketing.
0: Yeah, it's true. I, I have to say I've seen a lot of good speakers who are fantastic with uh, building the emotion within the presentation and actually keep you completely engaged because of the way they're expressing the emotion behind what they're saying. So if, if if you know if you've got these emotions, how how is it that on a website you have multiple types of users or different types of people with you know scarcity works with some people it doesn't work with others, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Or are you
0: saying that? there is a blanket level, like Maslow's hierarchies of needs, there's this blanket level of emotions at the base. And then as you go further up the hierarchy, they become much more you know, independent to the individual in their context.
1: Well, if we were to use Maslow's hierarchy. As, Please don't. As, I was
0: just using it as an example. I hate Well, that to, to use
1: it as a, as a starting point. Remember your subconscious is the one in charge and making all the decisions and below the emotional stuff, there's the automatic stuff. So that
0: the the, the reptilian part of the brain
1: cares about feeding and fighting and fornication and all kinds of Fs. And that one is fully automatic. And when there's a crisis, that's the one that kicks in. So, for example, it's well known that especially men become reckless and risk taking in the presence of attractive women. There's a reason that you have all those half naked women in all the advertising because that overrides everything else. I was logical, but then I saw a bikini and that's just how it works. And so again, being able to take advantage of that consciously and use it, I'm not saying you should have girly pictures all over your website, but my point is that there's a hierarchy to which goals are currently active and the very primal ones short circuit, everything above them. The logic goes out the window, even the emotions go out the window and we do things automatically.
0: So, so uh, I mean, I'm a big believer that, you know, all I'm, a, I'm, you know, hugely into what you're saying and I've, I've been practicing this and practicing my craft and trying to perfect it myself. But the one thing that I've realized is the more I do this is context is King. If you mm. don't understand the context in which the user is there or what page they're on or what they're doing at that point in time, then you could use an emotion that does the exact opposite of what you want so like a funeral home using scarcity might not be
1: might not be we're almost best. out of coffins we'll have to bury grandma in a cardboard box yeah, no, but listen,
0: we've got this other one that's much cheaper because these premium ones are gone so you should buy this one and put them in a note i mean like i mean it, a lot of what you're talking about you you Context plays a big role around what emotion you're driving. Right, so so
1: let's, let's, you're absolutely right. The same set of events or triggers will trigger different emotions based on my beliefs and cultural values. And one of the keys that people really underestimate is that we're really conformist and very tribal and we're there for tribal cohesion. That's what's helped us survive. So especially in times of uncertainty and stress, people will override their own direct experience and substitute their learned cultural knowledge. And and uh, modifying that is very scary because we rely on it. So I can tell you the same objective story, but it will land differently based on your values. Let me give you a quick example. So the bullfighter waved his cape, the bull charged at him. He deftly sidestepped and plunged the sword from above between its shoulder blades, striking its heart and killing it instantly. Okay, now that's an objective story. You could record that with a video camera. Now, if I tell you that somebody who supports bullfighting in Spain, it's about man versus raw nature. It's about being an impeccable warrior and tradition and all of this positive stuff. If I told that to someone who is a supporter of PETA, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, they would say this is barbarism, animal torture followed by murder, and people are paying to watch it and it needs to be stopped immediately. The same exact objective reality and story being interpreted through the prism of different cultural values. So number one thing you need to understand as a marketer is who's your audience. That's where it starts. Then what do they believe? What are their stories? What are their values? And only then do you design your product or service and messaging for them. And if we do it backwards. We say, here's our product. Everybody in the world should buy it.
0: Uh, I mean, that's like most briefs I get. Who's the target market? human beings on planet earth that are male <laughs> and fem- or female yeah. uh, and they live here. And there's like a map would point to Australia. Anyone is our target market. Yeah. So, yeah. Like,
1: or, or as I like to put it, anyone who has a neck. That's right. <laughs> who has a pulse, has a head, has a pulse. Uh, <laughs> so
0: I, I, I hear everything you're saying. And I, I guess I'm going to build on it is that the one thing that I hold true is that the brand is the, uh, the preset of the culture on that website. I mean, we've got clients whose website are atrocious, but every time we try to make it look better, it actually performs worse. Because the, the culture that it's set is that we are about bargains and we are about sales. And therefore, everything we do on our site is about driving that. And, and last time, I remember we did this one test for a client where we changed everything. And we try to make it polished and more better designed, and it actually had a negative effect. And when yeah. we went in and actually talked to users, they're like, I, I, "I'm about getting a bargain and that looks expensive." We're like, "Oh my God, we've gone into the trap and we've changed their home and they're back. Yeah, or, or,
1: or here's one. I've never actually been to India, but uh, you know those beautiful pictures of the purple sunsets uh, behind the Taj Mahal. Do you know why that sky is so beautiful? Pollution. It's, yeah, it's surrounded by a freaking slum. You walk mm. out of the compound and you're in a slum, apparently. Yeah. Yeah. And so the context matters. If I, I design the perfect Taj Mahal for you, but it's in the middle of a slum, it's going to be experienced very differently. So you're right. If your brand is bargain basement and low price, you don't want to undercut that by looking sophisticated and, and clean.
0: And so so you could use that as a clue into who is this tribe and What are they about so that you can then start looking at the right emotion to use within the work that you're doing? The
1: right values. What are their values? values. Yeah, Yeah. got it. And and, uh, I think that to understand that, get as close to your customers as you can. Most of us are talking, well, uh, return on ad spend and, you know, all this kind of fun stuff. And we're talking to other marketers within our company. But really, you should get as close to the front lines as you can. Talk, about, talk to your customer service people. They'll give you an earful about what people really think of your company or your salespeople and what objections they're getting. Or go out on Twitter and just look at that, the raw sewage that's spilling out And uh, with regard to your brand. You'll, get the, you'll have a real clear understanding. Uh, and a lot of times, that's the great way to find pain points and to actually write copies. Some of the best copy we ever wrote, we never wrote. Uh, We just go on customer surveys and talk to customers and then pull out words and language that they're already using. That's how you get fluent in the The value of the tribe.
0: tribe. Yeah. Being the OG of of experimentation and us being a practitioner of it. I'm really, I want to pick up on what you said earlier. around. you know, you're kind of walking away from that and really looking at a a much broader landscape Mm. in the context of a business, you know, we, we predominantly work with digital. In your experience, what's the untapped area where this kind of uh, psychology of behavior and experimentation could come and have a huge effect? You know, you talked about call, call centers. Is there any part of the business that like, hey, if you just adopt some of this thinking into this part of the business, you could have huge impact. And no one knows about it. and We've done this before.
1: You know, this is really um, detective work. What it requires is executive air cover. I once literally had somebody tell me, CRO is a swim lane. You know, we have pay-per-click, we have SEO, and we have CRO. So as long as you stay in your lane, everything's okay. And that's horrible. The most impactful situations I've seen are ones where you have executive air cover. Uh, My friend Joe Megabow used to run digital and conversion rate optimization for Expedia. He was a senior VP, reported directly into the president. Started, I believe, with a couple of people under him, and then all their properties eventually reported to him, and their goal was to improve performance by 5%. Now, when I spoke at their optimization summit, they had achieved that. They were making an extra billion dollars a year. So on a $20 billion business, 5%, it's real money. Uh, but the point is, it had executive air cover. And if you're just down there with the tacticians and the dashboards, and the, we have to run this through legal, and that's off brand, and all of that, if you don't have somebody with a wrecking ball helping you out, uh, you don't. You're really to mix metaphors, fighting with both hands tied behind your back. Yeah, 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 yeah. Your head hurts after a while. Yeah. So this is. So it would really depends on where you're going in inside the organization. Somebody sits on top of all the things you need to do. And that's the person you need to get to.
0: So really what you're saying is the ideology of experimentation can really be spread across the entire business. It's really about being open to the fact that you're going to break things to make them better.
1: But it's not even experimentation. If I say redesign your website from a user-centered perspective, that's not experimentation. If I say add a personalization layer... May we'll just start playing with it and trying different ideas? That's not experimentation. So, what should we call it then? Uh, business optimization. Yeah. Got it. Growth hacking. It's more broad. It's not, again, do you want to see it at the grown up table or do you just want to be down there with the analysts? really comes down to how many people do I have to manage and how expensive it is to be there. Because if I have to manage any more
0: people, no, I don't want to sit at the grown-up table. The kids' table is great. We're watching cartoons and eating French fries. It's all good. Okay.
1: Rick and Morty. <laughs>
0: That's exactly right. So, listen, I, I've, uh, I, I've had a real pleasure having a chat to you. Uh, as I said, guys, Tim's just uh, released on, you can get it from Booktopia, uh, Unleash Your Primal Brain. Uh, all the stuff that we' were talking about psychology behavioral psychology how the brain works you can really get a fast track by reading this book and, I, and Tim if the guys want to reach out to you and maybe ask you some questions can we share your email address would that be okay?
1: yeah absolutely so the way, the best way to reach me so the book is at primalbrain.com and it's out in ebook audiobook narrated by me as well as the booktopia and uh, the the rest of the world editions. Um, and you guys got it first, actually, like I said, September, the, the worldwide launch of the other edition is until April sixth. And um, if you want to reach out to me, that's just Tim at timash.com. If you're interested in the, the keynote speaking, digital marketing advisory, ruthless website reviews, feel free to just uh, go to timash.com. I still do that. No holds barred.
0: Uh, he's saying ruthless, but he's a very nice guy. I'm sure he's going <laughs> to soften it up before he slaps you in the face. Tip, thank you so much for being on the show. I really enjoyed our conversation. It's been a lot of fun.
1: Oh, it's, it's my pleasure, Nima.
0: Hopefully we can get you back again soon. Um, I, I'm looking to uh, maybe we can get you and one of our other brands and you can come on and do your ruthless assessment of their site
1: and we could talk through why it's so ruthless. <laughs> I'll be glad to do that. That's always a lot of fun. Anyway. At least for me, not not usually on the receiving side. Not on the receiving side, exactly.
0: So again, mate, thank you so much for being a part of it. You're listening to the New Republic Growth Hacking Podcast. My name is Nemi Usini. Thanks for being a part of it. And we'll look forward to the next show.